This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe if every word is true, and it is all that I need. All right. Matthew 14. What do you think, Herod, what's going through his mind and why? Look at it, the time of Herod, the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist, he has risen from the dead. How did you think he said that? Guilty and fearful. I heard it. That's great. Guilty and fearful. You better believe it. He is guilty and he knows it. And that whole scenario, we've talked about it before. And uh, so let's read it again. This is, he said, um, and now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the brother of Philip's wife. Now we got to stop there because I want you to see that um, it doesn't say, uh, and he was no longer Philip's wife. I mean, he is carrying on with Philip's wife. Well, it said, uh, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Which is, which is true. Of course, no one else is going to dare say that, but John the Baptist dares state the biblical truth, and that is that you shall have not, you should not covet any other man's wife. I mean, this is a commandment. And, and so I looked in other, other versions, and because I think as we go into this, uh, in, in the questions, I, I think it's good to kind of go off a little bit, and because I want to make this personal, because when do we say something, and when don't we say something? I think that's always the, the million-dollar question, you know, when do I speak up, and when don't I? And, um, and so here, what was Herod's motive? I looked in other versions, and it said, it didn't say that in, in the NIV, it says that he kept saying or that he was saying. In other words, maybe he did it more than once. But other versions said that he said. And, and I think that makes a difference because I think when we do state the truth, we have to check our motive. And that, first of all, let me just ask you, what, what truth are we talking about because I said, when you are sure of the truth, what does, enable, what does it enable you to do? What truth are we talking about here? God's truth. God's word, God's truth. And, and where the stickler comes in, what do we usually like to say? Whose truth? According, according to me. And so we've got to start to learn how to differentiate between God's truth and my truth. And this is where I think we, we mess up. Now, the truth is that Herod is, is carrying on with Herod's, with Philip's wife, which is his brother, but needless to say, it's still Philip's wife. And that's why I asked the question, you know, I talked about um, the word, um, you know, what's negotiable, what's non-negotiable, what's disputable, what's non-disputable. We've got to take a look at what is non-negotiable, what is non-disputable. That's truth. That's God's word. There's no question about it. It's like salvation is found in none other. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. It's ten commandments that say thou shalt not. I mean, how much clear can it be that is non-negotiable, that is not disputable? Now, I look at John, and I even asked you the question, what did truth cost him? It cost him his life. And so then I asked the question, should he have kept his mouth shut? No. So what, when we know the truth of God's word, what should that enable us to do? Speak it. Say it. But then I think you do have to make sure, and this is so important, because what did John the Baptist, what did he confront Herod and Herodias with this godly truth? Why did he do that? What was his bottom line motive? Salvation redemption, change of life, freedom of guilt. So I had to ask you about guilt. You know, what is guilt? And I've even gone as far as to say that I think guilt is a gift from God because it it makes you so miserable that when you know you have committed a sin that you know has got to be rectified and if it didn't if guilt was not so terrible we would never do it but guilt is so terrible so you want to get rid of it now you see in the story that Herod and Herodias thought that they could get that they could get rid of the loudmouth that was making them feel guilty then all would be well and then they wouldn't have this guilt in their face all the time But we know for a fact, and we know it for a fact, but I think sometimes we try to do the same thing that they do is kind of shirk it away and, and, you know, kind of make light of it or whatever. And, but guilt weighs a lot. It, It affects every part of us and it's supposed to because there's only one way you can get rid of that guilt and that is going to Jesus and get that sin repented that you confess and you repent so that he then says, I will forgive you. It's under the blood and you remember that sin no more. That's why we sang this morning. I'm free, not only from the fear of tomorrow, but I'm free from the guilt of my past because that can weigh heavy. That can affect. But because of Jesus, you and I have been set free from that guilt. And that's why John the Baptist said to him, you know what? You're doing something wrong here. Because God says in his whole intent, so bottom line here, what am I trying to get across here? We are, we have permission to be able to love someone enough to state the biblical truth to them if they're not seeing it. But when you do that, you have to make sure that you are so led of God's spirit and you have to check that motive because if your motive is, that's why I'm so sure about John the Baptist's motive. He wanted to see Herod and Herodias changed. He wanted marriages put back together. He wanted them to be set free, to experience forgiveness. There's the motive Unfortunately, when you have the right motive, it doesn't always it doesn't always come. I mean, look at it, it still cost him his life. Sometimes when we come at somebody with the biblical truth and our motive is pure, we have their best interest because there, let me just review this. There's a difference in being critical and being correcting. 
if you are if you are critical you come at them with a tone and an attitude, a superior attitude. In fact, you really have your best interest in mind. In fact, it feels pretty good to put someone else down because that makes you feel a little better. Criticism is pitiful. Correcting is something altogether different, and we all need to be corrected, but there's a whole different spirit in correcting because correcting is you have their best interest in mind, and if you have their best interest in mind and you're being guided by God's spirit, your whole tone, your whole demeanor, your whole purpose for doing it is of the Lord. But as we see, doesn't always, you sometimes got to take it under the chin because sometimes when people are confronted with their sin, they don't always want to see it. But you know what? That's not your problem. If your motive is, is their best interest and set them free and get them back on track. But the reason I also checked versions here is because I don't think that, that John badgered him. That he was in his face all the time, going after him all the time, and and you know just repeating it. And then it's like what Solomon said in Proverbs: or maybe a nagging faucet, maybe you know, an, uh, or a drippy faucet, and being a nagger, and yeah, just hound him. I'm telling you, you can just blow it. But see, there again, the spirit wouldn't have you do that. I know I've mentioned this before, but I know a couple whose child is not living the life of Scripture. I mean, it's, they're living in a different lifestyle. And, and uh, I remember them coming to me and, and asking me and talking to me about it. And, and they said, you know, it's just so terrible because he won't even open our birthday cards or our Christmas cards or anything like that. And, and I said, well, can I just ask you what you write in there? What do you write in your Christmas cards and your birthday cards? Well, we sure make sure that he knows that he's not living right and, and all this. And I said, to, I said, to be honest with you, I won't open them either. I mean, if you constantly know and you're just being hounded, I mean, you told him he knows. Let it go. Now, now it's the Lord's work. And our job is to love unconditionally. Well, doesn't that look like that we're accepting? No, he knows you're just loving him anyway. And you're going to let the Lord who does the heart changing, and you don't, by the way, he does. And the exciting, beautiful thing about over this holiday season, this couple went and spent time with this child of theirs and I mean is he radically changed and went back and no but the family came back and there's light there's an in there's communication their their doors are opening I'm telling you I get chills talking about it because they stopped hounding they stopped they stopped badgering they started loving unconditionally See, I think where we get in trouble here is we don't dare stand up for the truth of God's word because we're afraid. Because look, I'm going to read you. Look what happened here. It says, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much. Oh, didn't that get you in the video? There he sits perspiring like crazy. Oh, I thought that was so gross. (laughs) Oh, and you know what's going through his mind. You just know and so he's all worked up. He's all excited that he says to her, you can have anything you want. Well, then prompted by her mother, she said, give me, the, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed. 
Now, here's the line I want you to see. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests. So what is he more consumed about? What people think. You bet. His own self and what people think of him. See, now this is where I don't think it's complicated. John came at him with a hard motive for that he see his sin, that he be set free, that, that things could be put back together the way they're supposed to be. Then Herod then has, and Herodias, they have the choice to either receive it in the attitude and in the unconditional love and in the truth of what, it, what he's saying and be challenged by that truth or be more consumed about what people think and being more embarrassed and being more more humiliated and all that. I mean, he wasn't about to stoop to that level. Well, so it did cost John his life and his head was brought on a platter. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard what had happened, I mean, he really felt, he really felt bad. But I asked you a question that I, I, I still want to take the time with this because I think it's that important. Biblical truth, we should have the confidence and the strength and the courage under God's spirit to be able to love someone enough to state it. And with the right motive, we have their best interests in mind. Uh, we, have to, we have to know again what is non-negotiable, and that is God's word. And we can stand on that. But then, okay, flip. I know we're in Matthew 14, but flip ahead to Romans 14. And I want you to see that where I got these words, negotiable and disputable and all that kind of thing because Paul apparently they had the same problem and he when he wrote to the people of Rome in chapter 14 he said this is how this is, I want you people to understand this he said in Romans 14 verse 1 accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters so there is such thing as non-disputable and disputable. And we are to be able to stand solely and strongly and courageously on the truth of the non-negotiable of God's word. But then there are things as negotiables and disputables. And what are those? And I'm going to give you an example. And, and, and you've heard this from me before. It's like that whole episode of when that lady stood up and said to her future son-in-law, when he said, well, I'm going fishing with my brothers this afternoon. She said, I stood right up and said, we don't do that on Sunday. Well, you know what? I have been looking and looking in here, and I have yet to find that the Bible distinctly says you cannot fish on Sunday. <laughs> but then again, I haven't found where it said you can so I call that disputable. Now, and then I told you before we went on our break, I told you about, you know, I, I, you know, I, I am growing and learning just like everybody else. And for years, I watched this one TV program and laughed my head off, thought it was really funny. And I knew it was a pathetic show, but I mean, it's not going to affect me, you know. And, and, you know, I have to even say that my boys even said, you watched that again, didn't believe that you would watch something like that. And before, I didn't even think twice about it. I thought, well, hey, you know, I'm still, I'm still the same, and 
And now I look back and I'm thinking, your own boys questioned you. And I mean, it was one time I'm watching it thinking that this is just going to be fun. I, I mean, you know, after all, I work hard and now I can just sit and laugh and, and all this kind of thing. And all of a sudden I'm watching it. And as sure as I'm standing here, it was like the Lord appeared and said, what in the world are you doing? It was just like that. And you know why? It's because all of a sudden, me and he does, he works so patiently on our hearts. And I'm so grateful he doesn't show me everything that needs to be changed right away. But apparently it was time for him to deal with me on that. And boy, did he ever. Okay, now there's probably a lot of people that still think that that show is funny and still think it's fine. And in my Bible, it doesn't say, Linnell, you cannot watch such and such a show. But, but, it, it, but it doesn't say that I can or that I can. It's disputable. And this is where Romans 14, Paul says, this is where you have to be careful. And this is why we have gotten things mixed up. We as Christians are afraid to stand on the non-disputables because we're so afraid of what people are going to say and we might come off as, no, we don't have to. Why should we be so concerned about what people think? God said, and that should matter. But again, when you do it with the motive and the correctness of your heart that the Spirit will give you, even though they might not like it or take it right at first, you know you did the right thing. But where we do dare speak and stand up as on those negotiables and the disputables. And this is where that legalistic attitude comes in, that we don't go fishing on Sunday. Well, if I was at the table, I would have stood up and said, well, I beg to differ. And that, that's where dispute comes in because the Bible doesn't necessarily say so. When I asked you the question, what's the difference between disputable and non-disputable, negotiable and non-negotiable, it's very simple. What does the Bible say? The black and white direction, the commands, because they're not suggestions, they're commands. They're the black and white biblical truths that God set up because he knows us so well and what we need. But the disputable and the negotiable, I said, you got to figure that out. And you know what? That changes as you grow in the Lord. And this is why I think this is such a lesson on spiritual growth. And this is what I mean about every week we should be a little more Christ-like and we should be a little bit more like him because he challenges us with the little parts of our heart that need to be challenged and then they become more surrendered to him and his will. I mean, now, I can't believe how that negotiable half-hour program has now turned in my life to a non-negotiable. I don't watch it. But see, that's spiritual growth. It's, it's now I've been challenged by that. I've been convicted of that. The Lord has shown me that. And now I, I don't go there. But this is the way he does it. So, yeah, the Bible is not that full of non-negotiables and non-disputables. The rest we've got to figure out as we spiritually grow in him. And we watch him change us. But I think we, the lesson we learned from this is it's time that we start daring to stand on what's right and what's right from God's word. And we start relaxing a little bit with, with the non-negotiables and the disputables. And we let God deal with it because he will in time, in his time, just like he deals with us in his time. 
does this make sense? Am I coming through? Because I think that this was a very important issue because I think I always battle. When do I keep my mouth shut? When do I say something? And this really helped me. Be strong and courageous when it comes to non-negotiable and non-disputable. But loosen up a little bit. When it comes to those, they just, you've got you to gotta be the light and the salt. Keep the door open. Make Jesus look good and taste good so that they want to learn and grow and mature. And then the Lord will be able to work on their heart. And then their disputables will turn into non-disputables eventually. But the Lord does that. To be able to see the difference. And I think we would nip legalism and would, would nip this finger pointing people's face and would be a little bit more loving, less critical, less negative, and more appealing to Christianity if we lived out. But again, I'm just saying that when you do stand on God's non-negotiables, it doesn't always, it's not always going to be received well. But you can rest assured that you know you did the right thing because God's word is always the right thing. All right, then when Jesus withdrew because of this news, you know, he wanted some time to kind of think this through. And, but a hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I loved that. I went over that so many times because I thought, oh, that's what I want. I want, I want my time to be his time. That I'll let my day change if he, because they know we can get up with our agenda. And boy, we're not, we don't want anybody or anything to change it. And, you know, I think that reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, you've got the priest, you know, you've got the two religious leaders that step right over the guy. Because they got people to see and things to do. You know, to be able to be selfless, to be able to, to really say, Lord, you know, put me where you need to put me today. Change the schedule if you need to change the schedule. Make me selfless today. Because that's right, I am here for you, not me. I need to be reminded of that. Because, you know, what in your human nature, you know, you would think after Jesus heard about John and, and he's, he feels so deeply here and he just needs some time to process it all, you would think you would look at that crowd and just kind of yell at them, can't you give me 10 minutes? And you'd feel justified like, hey. And I think we all have that. And I think, no, I, I love his attitude here, his compassion. You let your time be his time. And you're willing to be used. Now, we know that he didn't need time away with this father. He's going to get that. I mean, the Lord knows that we need time with him. But I, I think we just, and, and I don't think these verses are just get so busy doing, Ruby and I were talking about that this morning. I think Satan's ploy is to get people so busy doing good things that they, that they don't have time for him. And that's not it here. I think, again, when you're walking with the Lord and you're, being, and you're listening to God's spirit, you just learn to kind of let yourself go and you're willing to let him use your day because he needs to borrow a body to fulfill one of his promises to somebody. And he uses us to do that. 
So at evening, as evening approached, the disciples came to him, and this is this is a remote place. He said, it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I wish I could, I bet if we could see Jesus right now, I bet if we could take a really good look at his face, he would have a little smirk. As he said to his disciples, hey, you feed them. You know, these two stories here, we know them so well, and the details are extraordinary. But I don't want us to miss the bottom goal of what Jesus is trying to get across in these two stories. And that word is trust. Know who I am and trust me. So he knows what he's got to do to again prove to them through this experience so they'll believe a little more, so they'll trust a little more. Well, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they said. We'll bring them here. And he directed the people to sit on the grass, take the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Again, I think the video helped us to see that how, how that all just worked. I mean, the bread just kept coming out of that basket. And that is astounding to think that he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. I mean, that is astounding. But then that's the point. Who can do something like that? So the whole goal was to get them to look at him and know who he is and to know that all things are possible through him. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Jesus knew that he was going to be able to accomplish a lot here. And this was, one was to get away, take the time that he needs to connect with his father. And I asked you a question about that because I think this too is vitally important for our spiritual growth. Jesus knew that he had to stay connected to his father. For what? Oh, such things as guidance, um, demeanor and attitude and right words and right behavior, uh, just little things like that. Because he knew that he wanted to fulfill the mission of his father, and he knew the only way he could really do that was to stay connected to him, to constantly be in a relationship with him that he was hearing the direction and what was necessary for that particular minute, to, to what move to make when, you're, when you have difficult people. When you want to humanly act one way and, and then when you're connected to the Father and his spirit, then you hear a whole different, no, no, don't do that. You'll only be sorry. That's why you need to stay connected to him. Jesus knew it. So I asked you, why is, what, what good lesson is this for us? To know that we need to stay connected to him. We need to be clinging to him. What for what? Oh, the little things like guidance and attitude and demeanor and what words to say and how to deal with difficult people, only little things like that. Otherwise, we're going to go in our own direction because there's only two. So in that question, you know, um, 
What should we be doing? Well, you know about the way Jesus knew he had to spend time with his father. Um, how should how is that relatable to us? I mean, we should have the very same desire. We should have the very same answer as why did Jesus do it? That's why we do it. But there is also another reason. It's because he sent them off, and you know how it said, you know, there's a according to military standards as far as how they how they had guards during the night they divided them into hours of watch the first watch second third and the fourth watch was between like 3 and 6 a.m. I didn't know this I don't know if you did I mean I've heard it in songs before but I really didn't know that the darkest hour of night is right before dawn that's the darkest hour and so why did why did Jesus wait until the fourth? Why did he wait until the fourth watch? Well, probably because he was spending time with his father. Yes, there's that logical. Now, during the first watch, I mean, you know, the storm comes up. The disciples probably still think that they can handle it. It's not so bad. Then the second watch, then they realize, well, I'm getting a little more tired, but I still think I can handle it. Third watch, I mean, they're really getting tired and the storm is getting worse. Jesus waited until they finally got to the point where they couldn't handle it anymore. I told you before, the Lord loves the word desperate and he'll make us wait and he'll take us to the farthest till we finally throw up our hands in desperation and we say, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. That darkest time, okay, let, let's, let's go into the night. Let's say you're in the darkest time of the night. Maybe literally, maybe it's three, four in the morning, but now that you know that it is the darkest time, I think it's also mentally and emotionally the darkest time. He puts you into the darkest time. What happens when you're in your darkest time? What does it make you? What are you willing to do when you finally get into your darkest time? You're going to call out to him. You're going to listen. And uh, the word came last night, and I loved it. And that one, one person shouted out, vulnerable. I'm finally vulnerable. I'm finally willing to throw up my hands and feel desperate enough and vulnerable enough to l- finally listen in the quietness of the darkest hour. You're finally going to listen. And what are you going to hear him say that he said here? What did he say? If you are vulnerable and if you are desperate and if you're, if you get your ears finally tuned in because you're, you're finally, you got your mitts off and you realize you can do it and only he is going to be able to do it through you. You're going to hear him say the word come. And, and even before come, he says what? Do what does he say? Take courage. Take courage. It is I. Be not afraid. Okay? They, I mean, they look and they, all they see is a ghost. They're scared spitless here. So you've got fear. You have got doubt. You've got everything that will sink you. 
You've got all that going. And what does Jesus say? Take courage. It is I. In the darkest hour, you are finally vulnerable enough to hear his voice saying to you, because he promised, because this is the undisputable word of God, and he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, if, oh my, what does that, if, what does that sound, sound like to you? That's doubt. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come and come to you on the water. Boy, it didn't take Jesus, no hesitation, nothing. He knew who he was. And that was what Peter said. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. So out came the word come. And look what Peter was able to do when he fixed his eyes on Jesus, when he turned from himself and looked in his wonderful face. The Lord enabled him to do what he could never do on his own. Now, do you think there's a lesson here? I have to say, I had a funny thing happen. One of my grandsons said over the holidays, we were watching something. And I come up, of course, with something like I always do. And he finally turned to me and he said, can you watch anything without a lesson in there? That's what he said. Can you ever just watch anything for fun? That's what he, And I said, yeah, I am your phone grandma. I watch a lot of things for fun, but I also am always ready to learn if there's a lesson there. And I said, look at what we were watching. Look at how naughty those two were to that one kid. I said, didn't that look terrible? Look how mean those two were. Do you want to be that? Oh, he just went away laughing. He thought, but he, but, but I, but I had to think, but I think that, that that's okay. What is the Lord trying to say here? I mean, in the feeding of the 5,000, I mean, there was one, there was one thing that, that it said, and they were, they ate and they were satisfied. And all of a sudden I thought, well, yeah, he's the bread of life. And if I eat of him, I will be satisfied. So yes, in the middle of that story, that's filled with beautiful details, the Lord's teaching lessons. And he said, I am the bread of life. And here in this story, Jesus says, come, I, I know who I am. And you said, if I am who I am, tell me to come. So I do. And, and he is able to be able to do the impossible. And I think that is such a valuable lesson because what do storms do to us? So often a storm will immobilize us because why? We start to, starts with a W. <laughs> We start to worry. What have we learned about worry? Worry immobilizes you. Concern draws you to God's word. What else will a storm do? Cause you to say, if, yeah, but I, I am going to stand here and I'm going to keep saying it because I believe it with all my heart. You cannot say that you live by faith and have, a, and have one yeah, but after another in your, in your wording. Oh, I have faith in him, but I don't buy that one bit. And I think Jesus finally said it when, when, when he started to sink. Because what, what caused Peter to start sinking? He started looking at the wind. He started looking at the natural. He started looking at, hey, I'm not supposed to be able to do this. 
And I think that's why the wisest man in all the world said, if you trust the Lord with all your heart, but he also knew that you had to choose not to look at your own understanding. He knew that that's always going to be a battle because, yeah, I have faith that he is who he is, but I'm not supposed to be able to do this. When you have when you have something in your life, you have a storm in your life, and you're finding you're finding that that you're not going down with this storm. It's not that you don't feel, but you find that you're you're getting through this. You're finding that every day you can wake up and you you really believe that the Lord is walking with you and He is who He is and He does what He promised. When you do that, but the minute you start looking to the point where you say. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to make it through this. I'm supposed to be crumbled mess. I'm supposed to I'm supposed to fall into all my all my weaknesses. I'm supposed to um and instead you see strength and courage. But that's the Lord working in you. But when when you start looking at the reality and say, Yeah, but I'm not supposed to make it through. I'm supposed to I'm I'm just supposed to be a puddle of mess. No. It doesn't mean you're insensitive or that you don't ever cry or that you don't ever hurt, but you you find that the Lord is sufficient and he is getting you through what you never thought you could get through. I look at many of you, and I know that you can say amen to that. And last night, I got to tell you, I got one too. Last night, a lady said amen. She was in the back row because she experienced that. But you'll never experience the strength and the courage and the ability to do what you can't do if you're saying you're yeah, but all the time. And if you keep looking at the, the human situation, because that's what he did. He started looking at the wind. And what happened? He started to sink. So I'm going to ask you, what sinks you? What, what sinks us? What causes us to, instead of looking at the Lord and seeing that he enables us to do what we can do for ourselves, what starts sinking us? Taking our eyes off. And then what happens? Then all the human realities, name some. Name some of the human realities that we start looking at. We said worry already. The other one starts with a D, doubt, because that's a yabba. What's another one? Fear, fear. That's so you, so we've got three sinkers right there. And that is, pardon me? Trying instead of trusting. Trying to do it yourself instead of just trusting, trusting that he is going to enable you. Yeah. So if you keep that in mind, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. What is faith? Trust in him. You keep your eyes fixed on him, the author and the perfecter of your faith. You cut out the yeah buts because, okay, when he started going down, he was afraid, he started to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The one thing I have to give Peter credit for is that he still knew where to go for help. Be dared, you know, and that's it. You're, you, you. When he dared, when he dared, step out of the boat and walk on water, that is you and me walking in the middle of our storm, daring to believe that God will keep us on our feet when all reality tells us we should be a mess. Yeah. 
So he said, Lord, save me immediately. And this, this is what was so beautiful. Immediately, does it say, the Lord put his finger in his face and said, shame on you, Peter. No, immediately Jesus reached out his hand. That is beautiful. This is what a patient, unconditional, loving father will do. But I think the way in the video where it said, where it shows that Jesus is kind of laughing, you know, when he gets him and, and then he hugs him and, and says, like you have a little faith, why did you doubt? He's not laughing because it's funny he's laughing because I believe he's saying boy do we have work to do boy do you have a long way to go before the book of Acts starts before I send you a boy do we we have to work on this but I see I see because I think in our minds we always think that Jesus is so stern and but I think we see him as gentle and we see him grace-filled and we see him patient. So I think it's perfectly fine that we don't see him full of condemnation because he said that's not why he came. He came to save. And he reached out his hand and a God of love and patience starts us all over again but says, you know what? I hope we don't go back there again. I'll take you just as you are, but I am not content to let you stay there. I will continue to keep pushing you forward so that you will finally get to know who I am and trust me and believe that my will is perfect and that my timing is perfect and that you will not have any more yabats and you will not sink with worry and fear and doubt. That's his goal. What a goal it is too. Wouldn't it be something to think that, that and when our storm comes, we don't, we don't have worry and doubt and fear because we trust him that we believe he is up to something and it's always for our good. And look what accomplished. Look what happened. Look what they said when they climbed, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And I bet if we could see Jesus' face, we would see a big smile saying, yep, it worked. See, like I prayed this morning, he's not mean. He's not out to make us miserable. He's out to make us get to the point where we say, truly, you are who you are. I hallow your name, but I also know that you love me as a father because you are. And when they all crossed over, they landed to Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. That beautiful picture of touch what what does when when you touch someone when you touch Jesus that that means it's a connection there is a connection and when you are connected he heals you and healing we know was physical at this point of the game but we also know that when Jesus touches us when he heals us it might not always be physical but healing is when we get to the point where we say truly you are the son of God and your will is perfect and I dare surrender my life to you that's ultimate healing 
That's ultimate victory. That's ultimate abundant life. That's when you sing blessed assurance. That's when you sing it is well with my soul. That's being healed. You're letting God be God in your life. And that's his goal. And that's our goal this year. So have a good week.